0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode is titled, What Shall We Call Them? The survival of the Christian Church in the 2nd and 3rd centuries is surely a testimony to the favor of God. Any objective consideration of the challenges faced by the Christian community during this time has to wonder at the tenacity of the followers of Christ. This was a 200-year period when they faced constant challenges, from heretics, false teachers, as well as intense external pressure in the form of persecution. It was also a time in which Christian theology was still being developed, and local churches were improvising how to be led. Let's take a closer look at how the leadership of the church developed during this crucial time of formation. Little is given in the New Testament by way of a design for church government what we find instead is a description of the character of those who served as elders and deacons. But precisely what these offices were to do isn't really spelled out. We can only infer their duties from the word that's used to describe them. Since the term elder is synonymous with pastor in the New Testament, the elders were to lead, feed, and protect the flock of God. Deacons, as their title suggests, performed a ministry of practical service in attending to the physical needs of the fellowship. In Acts, we see the Apostle Paul ensuring that the churches that he started had some form of pastoral leadership when he left. From his leaders, we glean that there were two classes of these church leaders, itinerant and resident. One group, comprised of the Apostles, Evangelists, and Prophets, tended to move from place to place, while pastors and deacons serviced a single congregation or would tend a limited region of several smaller fellowships. Ignatius of Antioch gives an important insight into the maturing of church leadership that took place at the beginning of the second century. In order to make sure that each congregation was well served by its leaders, Ignatius argued for a single pastor-elder to lead the church, assisted closely by a group of fellow elders and deacons. Though the word bishop simply means overseer and is synonymous with elder and pastor in the New Testament, The lead elder in each church was given the title of bishop. Ignatius urged that churches adopt this model of leadership. This form of church government facilitated communication both within and between churches. With a bishop in each congregation, there was now one person to ensure communication with other congregations and their bishops. Having a bishop helped ensure a consistent policy in the distribution to the poor and produced a consistent voice in dealing with the challenge of false teachers. It was a few decades until Ignatius's bishop-elder's-deacon form of church government was broadly established, but it eventually became the model that most congregations adopted. Yet even when churches embraced it, they often implemented it differently. For instance, in Asia and Africa, each local congregation had its own bishop. In Western Europe, a bishop of a church in a larger city often exercised oversight in the smaller churches of surrounding towns and villages by appointing their elders and pastors. By the late 2nd century, the undisputed leader in church affairs was the bishop. It was the challenge of Gnosticism that greatly encouraged this, and here's why. The Gnostics claimed an unbroken succession of specially enlightened teachers all the way back to Jesus. They claim that Jesus had entrusted a secret message to the apostles, who in turn passed it on to others, and of course the Gnostics were just the latest in that succession of enlightenment, who, for the right price, would impart that secret knowledge to the next generation of Gnostics and their leaders. In countering Gnosticism, the church emphasized the public rather than the secret character of the gospel, as had been openly taught by Jesus and his apostles. They stressed that the tradition of the apostles had not gone underground, but that those leading the churches of the second century could trace their connection to Jesus through the apostles by a visible line of communication and affirmation. Crucial to this argument was the role of those churches that had been established by the original apostles and their close associates, the apostolic fathers. In the second century, the list of those who'd served as the lead elders wasn't something that was lost to the mist of time. People knew who'd been the pastors at places like Corinth, Ephesus, in Rome and Smyrna, and other key churches. In the mid-second century, an historian named Hegesippus made a trip from Israel to Rome, interviewing bishops all along the route. Now, check this out because it really is important. Hegesippus discovered that the bishops all shared the same message and viewed the faith in the same way. They also went about their task of leading the church in the same general manner. He wrote, quote, in every succession and city, what the law and the prophets and the Lord preached is faithfully followed, unquote. Hegesippus even drew up lists of bishops showing their succession in unbroken lines going back to the apostles. Not long after Hegesippus, Irenaeus in Western Europe and Tertullian in North Africa filled out the succession picture for the bishops in their regions. Well, the point is this. By the dawn of the third century, each local congregation, in the larger cities at least, had a lead elder who functioned as what today we'd call a senior pastor, but was known in that time as a bishop. This bishop was assisted by a close group of fellow elders who oversaw the spiritual needs of the congregation while their physical needs were met by a group known as the deacons. The development of this form of church government was in all likelihood encouraged by the model of the Jewish synagogue, as well as the nature of group dynamics. Whenever a group of people meet, it's pretty much inevitable that one will rise to take the lead. And even among leaders, one of them will tend to be invested with the role of taking the lead so that the work of the group is more efficient. As one elder in a church is invested with this lead role, the other elders and the church as a whole recognize the advantage of having one man who was called by God to lead them. When the threat of false teaching, such as Gnosticism, presented a challenge to the faith, it further advanced the role of the bishop, who would then meet with other bishops to develop a united response to the new threat. These gatherings of bishops to address issues of interest and concern to the faith becomes a major part of the history of the church. Known as councils and synods, they will see the major issues of their day brought forward for consideration and debate. Now, I need to pause at this point and recognize that the emergence of the role of bishops in leading the church is a point of major controversy. Not that bishops did, in fact, become the de facto leaders of the church, but what that development meant. Some claim that the rule and role of bishops was the plan and will of God. Others tend to see it as a tragic departure from what Christ intended for his followers. Still, others would say that it wasn't the development of this form of church government that was the problem. What became a problem was the quality and character of the men who became bishops. Without question, what commended the faith to outsiders during the first through second centuries was the quality of the lives of believers. As we've considered in previous episodes, the rumors that were circulated about what Christians believed and practiced in secret was absurd. It was just crazy talk. Those who actually knew Christians put little stock in the rumors because of the exemplary morality that they lived by. Christians understood the power of the Holy Spirit, not so much as something that manifested itself in spiritual gifts, but as a moral energy that produced the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace... Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul told believers to look for as the evidence of the Spirit's work. The early church fathers continued that emphasis, so much so that members who continued in sin were first rebuked and then removed from fellowship. But it wasn't just Christians themselves who claimed a call to moral excellence outsiders gave testimony to the exemplary ethics and practices of Jesus's people. In writing to the emperor Trajan, the governor Pliny said that in his examination of Christians and their practices, he was unable to find anything immoral. In all respects, they were model citizens, except that they were part of an illegal sect. Justin Martyr says that it was the moral attractiveness of the followers of Christ that moved him to consider their doctrine. But something changed at the dawn of the third century. The morality of the church began to dim, not universally, but in certain places. This brings us back to the role of baptism in both the ministry of the church and in the individual lives of its believers. The book of Acts presents water baptism in much the same way that some churches use an altar call today. It was a way for people coming to faith in Christ to make a public confession of their faith. The church used baptism as a way to give individuals a way to mark their inclusion in the sacred community, the communio sanctorum. But over the next 200 years, that understanding of baptism morphed into a much more spiritually significant event. Baptism was thought to cancel all sins committed up to that moment. Following baptism, it was believed that certain sins required special penance to be discharged, And if those sins were severe enough, well, they were beyond forgiveness. There were three sins that were considered especially heinous, apostasy, murder, and sexual immorality. These sins might be forgivable by God, but the church could not restore the guilty to fellowship. Violators were excommunicated and denied access to communion, which, like baptism, had taken on more importance than as a memorial of Christ's sacrifice. The elements of the Lord's Supper were seen as spiritual food that nourished the grace by which believers maintained their salvation. So, to be cut off from communion meant being in jeopardy of exclusion from those who would attain heaven. Ignatius referred to the bread and the wine as the medicine of immortality and the antidote to death. The issues of bishops and baptisms came together during the first half of the third century. This was a time of relative peace for the church when persecution at the hands of Roman officials cooled. In some places, Christians were not only tolerated, they gained favor. This favor resulted in a loosening and lowering of the moral expectations that believers held toward each other. Sins that before incurred rebuke were often left unaddressed, while those that had led to disfellowship were forgiven. One of the first to grant reconciliation to repentant sinners was Callistus, the bishop at Rome, from 217 to 222. He restored repentant adulterers. Callistus likened the church to Noah's Ark, in which was contained both the clean and the unclean. It was a school, he said, where sinners learned to be saints and a hospital where the sick could recover. But then Callistus went further. He defended his position by claiming that, as the bishop at Rome, he was heir to the authority of the apostle Peter, who'd received from Jesus the keys of authority to define church belief and practice, not just at Rome, but for the entire church. Those keys, Callistus said, included the power either to bind or loose the guilt of individuals. This was the first time that such authority was claimed by a bishop of Rome. When Tertullian, a leading bishop of North Africa, heard this pronouncement by Callistus, he was appalled and said, specifically regarding the issue of what to do with people who'd been excommunicated, quote, We do not forgive apostates. Shall we forgive adulterers? Unquote. Tertullian's objection had traction with the previous generation, but quite frankly, was no longer in favor among the churches of Europe. While Tertullian voiced the majority view of North Africa where he lived and worked, the bishops and churches north of the Mediterranean agreed with Callistus. Their reasoning went further. If adulterers could be reconciled to fellowship, why not apostates? And so we see the scene set for the Novationist and Donatist controversies of the third century that we'll consider in our next episode. As we end this one, let me be clear. While Ignatius of Antioch was the earliest voice that we have who advocated that local churches ought to be led by a single elder pastor— who we can think of as a senior pastor, but of course was given the title bishop, Ignatius never hinted at the idea that the entire church ought to have a single bishop. It wasn't until Callistus in the early third century that someone floated the idea that the bishop of Rome wasn't just the lead pastor of the capital church, but of the church everywhere. The bishops of the Roman church might indeed be dynamic leaders as befitting a church of thousands, But this idea of being the spiritual heir of Peter's authority was something brand new. Now, I know that will fire some up, but let me use an illustration to show how Callistus' claim was received by the other bishops of the time. Imagine today that a pastor of one of the older and larger churches of your city, your county, or your province, sent out a letter or an email to all the other churches in the region saying that because his church was older and larger, well, he was now their leader they ought to obey him and defer to his decisions. How would that be received? (laughs) Probably not so well. Well, that's how most bishops responded to Callistus's claim. It was a combination of factors and differing opinions between a handful of lead churches in their respective regions that would see Rome and its bishop take on a larger role than just one of many churches. But that also is the subject for a later episode. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.